Would you please take the Word of God with me and turn to the book of Acts and chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. In your New Testaments here we are looking at the first record of the church from its very beginning. And we have a clear picture and a clear understanding of what the first century church was all about. And uh, the Lord needs to uh, help us, pray that we would gain some understanding and understand what we need to be about uh, today in the 21st century. Uh, Things are always changing, but there are certain things that should never change. And that is our understanding of the church and what the church is supposed to do in the world. And so in Acts chapter 5, we're going to, we are reading the account here, and we're going to pick it up, if you would, verse 25 of Acts chapter 5. Again, the circumstances, we find that the high priest rose up against Peter, the apostles. They were filled with indignation, as we find halfway through the chapter. They put their hands on the apostles. They put them in prison, and uh, they're thinking, they're trying to conspire what they're going to do with them. And um, the next day, uh, they uh, sent some men over to the prison, and they found that uh, they're not there. And somebody comes and says, they're actually in the temple, and they're, they're preaching and teaching. And we come to verse 25. Notice with me, the Bible says, Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in his name, this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Uh, Verse 28 should tell us what the church is all about. We have to fill Wilmington, Delaware, Newcastle County with doctrine, the doctrine of the word of God. That is why we exist. And then verse 29, notice Peter's reply. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. I would like to bring your attention, if you would, to verse 30. As Peter begins to uh, speak and reply, he says very clearly, The God of our fathers, here it is, raised up Jesus. And I would like to preach a message that I have entitled, God Raised Up Jesus. Now, Resurrection Sunday is next week. I'm not going to preach on the resurrection this morning. I'm going to talk about what it means here that God hath raised up Jesus. Before we consider this here in the first few chapters in Acts, we have learned a number of important truths concerning the first century church. We have also learned some important truths about the world and those who we would consider in the unbelieving uh, group of people. Uh, The work of the church has been made clear in the first four chapters. 
The work of the church is this. It is to preach and to teach Jesus Christ. There it is. Now, that's a good summary of the work of the church. And we also have learned in the first four chapters that the opposition to the message of the church has remained unchanged since its inception. Unbelief is as old as the gospel. It is not something that pertains to the 21st century. It is something that we find in the very first century. And so we've determined that unbelief is as old as the gospel. And we also noted that the first century church was unwilling, this is important here, the first century church was unwilling to replace the gospel message with a social agenda. As a matter of fact, they were never told to stop the miracles. They were never told to stop making this world a better place. What they were told to do repeatedly is to stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. I believe that they would have been allowed to continue their miracles if it meant to not speak about Jesus Christ. Just in the record of the last two chapters, it is evident that the church was focused upon one message. If you go back to chapter 4, notice with me verse 19 and 20. The Bible says, But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I want you to think about that word, speak. They could not but speak the things that they have seen and heard. Go over down to verse 31 of chapter 4. The Bible says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. There it is. They're speaking again. Those people, Christians, always talking. You go over to chapter 5. Notice verse 20. You remember what the angel told them to do? Verse 20 of chapter 5. Go, stand, and speak in the temple all the words of this life. Notice down to verse 28. You remember what was the conflict? What, what did they tell Peter to do? Notice verse 28. Did we not, or did we not straightly command you not that you should not teach in this name? Stop talking about Jesus. And the, the, the answer from the Apostle Peter, verse 29, should be our same reply. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now remember, in that chapter, the context is what? What did the angel say? Sent from God. What he told him? Go in the temple and speak. So when they say we ought to obey God rather than men, what were they saying? We're going to speak what God wants us to speak. We are going to preach about Jesus Christ. And so we find ourselves in the midst of this great conflict, the conflict that is still raging since its inception, and it is remarkable to see that the world has been eager to accept many different messages. Have you noticed that through the centuries? However, this particular message of the church has been vehemently opposed since its beginning. The Bible says here, notice with me again, Acts 5, verse 30, Peter speaks and he says, The God of our fathers, I want you to hear those words, raised up Jesus. I want to preach on that this morning. God raised up Jesus. 
As we consider this expression, we may tend to think that the resurrection of the resurrection of Christ in the word raised. I believe the word is not a reference to the resurrection of Christ. Rather, I believe the word is a reference to the fact that Christ came to earth. If you think about the timing here, verse 30, God our Father raised up Jesus, so Christ came into the world. Verse 30, ye slew him. And then verse 31, him hath God exalted at his right hand. I believe that's when the resurrection comes in. But Jesus Christ came. You've hung him on the tree, but God has exalted him. So I believe that the word raised here refers, I believe is actually a quote from Peter, back to the words of Moses himself. If you go back with me to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18, we think about this idea that God raised up Jesus. What is he talking about? Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, the words of Moses, here Moses speak in prophecy, and he says in Deuteronomy 18, 15, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee. There it is. You see that word raised? Of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. So here, the words of Moses, he says, God will raise up unto thee a prophet. What is that word raise meaning? He is going to be among you. God's going to bring a man in your midst. He's going to raise up a prophet. As you think about Old Testament prophets, the same word is used about them. They did not rise from the dead, but the Bible says that God would raise up a prophet in their midst. And so when we find here that Peter is saying that God raised up Jesus, I don't believe he's referring to the resurrection. I believe he's going to refer to the resurrection later, but right now he is talking about the fact that Jesus Christ would be raised, he would come to the earth. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 tells us, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. We could say he raised his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. Consider with me the preaching of the Apostle Paul when he makes a distinction between the coming of Christ with the word raised and the resurrection of Christ with the same word raised. Go with me to Acts 13. In Acts chapter 13, notice with me, let's begin reading in verse 14. So Acts chapter 13 We'll read here this section here because this is a message. And notice the words that the Apostle Paul is going to use. I'll give you a moment to get there. Acts 13, we'll begin reading verse 14. Now wait just a second here until the page stops turning. All right, there you go. Notice the Bible says, And when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up. Notice Paul is really eager to speak. And beckoning with his hand said. So the beckoning with the hand, the gesture movement, that's not something that is particular to me. Okay, that happened uh, right there with the apostle Paul. Uh, then Paul stood up. By the way, there's no uh, nothing in my notes that says, all right, raise your hand here and flap your arms right here. There's no, nothing like that in my notes, all right? It just happens naturally. The Bible says, he beckoning with his hand said, Men and, uh, of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people 
of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt with a high uh, arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. <laughs> He's going to go through a history there. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of, the, of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, notice the wording, verse 22, he raised up unto them David. Is that referring to a resurrection or the fact that David comes on the scene? The fact that David comes on the scene to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed, notice, of this man's seed hath God according to his promise, here it is, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Same word raised. Back how it is used of David. Notice verse 24. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? Am I not he? But behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voice of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, when they had fulfilled them in, the, in condemning him, and though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he, should, uh, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. There it is. So earlier you find that the Bible says, just like God raised David as a king, so God from the seed of David would raise a Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll see later that he would be put to death, and he would also be raised from the dead. So when we find in Acts chapter 5, when Peter begins to preach, and he says, or a reply to the chief priests and to the people there, when he says, God of our fathers raised up Jesus, I don't believe here he is talking about the resurrection. I just simply believe here that God said that God would raise up unto them a Savior, as Paul put it in Acts chapter 13, just as he raised David. Now, why is that important here? I believe for this very, uh, for this very reason that the world is always looking for a Savior. As a matter of fact, one preacher put it this way. One preacher said, civilization, he tried to define civilization. Civilization is the attempt of the human race to get out of its difficulties and problems. It is always hoping that it will produce a wise man that out of all of this striving and effort and thought and philosophizing, suddenly some outstanding genius will appear who will utter the magic formula that will solve all of the world's problems. That is civilization. You see, the world is always ready to believe in saviors. It is always ready to believe in emancipators, in liberators, in redeemers. Rome was ready to believe in Caesar. France in Napoleon, uh, Italy in Mussolini, Germany in Hitler. 
Russia, in Stalin, these were all saviors. And this is still true today, and it's true as it's ever been. Do you, we not look around us? What do we see in civilization? We need a savior. We need somebody to solve our problems. We need somebody, somebody that needs to be raised up that we can hold up as savior. Krumah was a prime minister and he became the president of Ghana in the 1950s and the 1960s and he called himself the savior of Ghana and its people. Krumah built a statue of himself with the inscription, Redeemer. It is interesting here that there is always this, this uh, as you think about the course of this world, there's always this attempt in nations and in leaders to bring about somebody who can stand up, to raise somebody to the forefront, who can be, if you would, the so-called Savior or Redeemer of the world, someone who will solve all the ills of society. If you think about political, I think about one particular individual. You think about Germany in the mid-1800s after the loss of World War I. They were in great political and economic turmoil, which set the stage for Hitler. After much political and economic turmoil, Hitler emerged in German politics in July of 1932, just after not long ago had been released from prison with the Nazi party. Hitler was appointed chancellor by Hindenburg because of the political turmoil in January 30th of 1933. And on July 14th of that same year, Hitler decreed that the Nazis would be the sole party in Germany. Now what brought about Hitler? That's the question that many historians and philosophers and scholars have attempted to answer that basic question. What brought about the rise of Hitler? And I believe that it is a tendency of any nation, of any society to look for a savior. But let me set the stage for you. It is well known that Hitler was captivated by a man named Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a German philosopher. Nietzsche had many written books. The two arguably most famous are Beyond Good and Evil, and his other book is The Antichrist. Hitler was so influenced by Nietzsche that he gave a copy of his writings to his friend, Benito Mussolini. Hitler often visited Nietzsche's museum in Weimar and posed for photographs of himself staring enraptured at the bust of that great man Nietzsche. Hitler adopted Nietzsche as a spiritual brother and interpreted his writings to suit his purposes. You say, who was Friedrich Nietzsche? He lived between 1844 and 1900. He died in 1900. He accused Christianity of weakness and of being the cause of all of Germany's ills. In his book, Antichrist, he wrote this, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one enormous and innermost perversion, the one moral blemish of mankind. I regard Christianity as the most seductive lie that has yet existed. Nietzsche also wrote, Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? 
Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's to decompose. God is dead, and we have killed him. That's what Nietzsche said. He called the churches tombs and sepulchers of God. But that's not all. Since God was dead, Nietzsche proclaimed the coming of the master race and a superman who would unify Germany and perhaps the world. In his humanism, he advocated and prophesied for a human savior who would rule and fix all societal ills. He claimed that such a man and those around him would become lords of the earth. That is what brought about Hitler because what Nietzsche advocated for is exactly what Hitler saw himself as. The savior of Germany. As a matter of fact, if you study uh, the beginning of the, the time when, uh, when Hitler became the chancellor, the, eco- the economy uh, 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 rose and people uh, had jobs again and things were taking off for the German people and they, many people started regarding Hitler as a savior, somebody who fixed their problem. What is devastating is churches in Germany as well. They ended up following Hitler. I'm reading a book right now, and I'm just getting started, which is where I got the content, but it talks about Hitler's cross, how Hitler deceived Christianity. And I'll tell you what, how Hitler deceived Christianity, because the church stopped doing what the church was supposed to do. The church adopted a social agenda, and they ceased to preach the message of Jesus Christ. Hitler came on the scene as a savior of the German people. And what we find here, as you think about all throughout world history and all those leaders that came up, that even the history book said these are the greatest leaders throughout the parade of human history. They all have the same thing in common. And there's something that marks these men. And I, when I read the words here in Acts chapter 5 and verse 30, the Bible says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. He calls them who will be a prince and a savior. Jesus Christ is the only true savior. He is the only one that can redeem man from sin. He is the only one who is a true savior. And I want to point out for you just for a few moments here, because as we think about this great conflict, what was the conflict here uh, between the religious leaders and the apostles? Remember, the apostles were deemed as unlearned and ignorant men. They don't know what they're talking about. We just know that they have been with Jesus Christ. But these religious leaders... They considered themselves a savior. They considered themselves the builders of society. They considered themselves having the answers to society. It is, isn't it interesting that after 2,000 years of world history since the time of Jesus Christ, all the way up to now, how many nations have been started? How many constitutions have been formed? How many nations have raised up but then have gone? How many leaders have arisen and gone? How many statues and busts have been constructed and raised up, but yet they've been torn down? Jesus Christ is different than all those men. And I want to spend a few times telling you how different he is. 
Men who are saviors have the same things that are evident about them that are in opposition to Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few examples. Men who see themselves as saviors always have an exalted view of themselves. Isn't that interesting? If you study the uh, world history of some of those greatest leaders, they actually not only uh, 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 other nations considered them, wow, these are great leaders, but they themselves had an exalted view of themselves. They saw themselves as Redeemer, just as Kruma, who erected a statue of himself and uh, put on the inscription, Redeemer. They see themselves, they've exalted themselves to that position of Savior. They see themselves as the answer to society, but they are not. Our Lord Jesus Christ is quite different. The Bible says Jesus Christ, He took upon Him the form of a servant. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, But he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Bible says, Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Not only are men whose Uh, see themselves as Savior, always have an exalted view about themselves. Men who see themselves as saviors cannot relate to the common people, but demand their admiration. Isn't that true? You see, these people who see themselves as leaders like Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, they see themselves as above the people. They think of the common people as insects, as unworthy of of communicating with them uh, because they are the supreme rulers. You don't know for yourself. You need me to tell you how to think. That is why you look at the greatest dictators in the history of the world. What did they always do? They sought to brainwash a society, to infiltrate their schools, and to try to corrupt the minds of children so that they grow up and would have their admiration of those leaders. Men who see themselves as saviors cannot relate to the common people. They always demand admiration without any basis. But as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible makes it very clear that He mingled Himself with the common people. He did not want to become their earthly king or ruler. When people sought to take him by force, he ran away from them. He was not interested in becoming their ruler that would fix all these societal ills. The Bible says in Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. You see, we, you think about the life of Jesus Christ, you cannot say that of men who see themselves as Savior. They are not friends to the common people. They are the enemy of the common people. They are the gods of the common people, but Jesus Christ came and he ate and drank and sat with sinners, just like me and you. You remember when Zacchaeus, or when Jesus Christ invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, the people were murmuring, he's a publican. He's a tax collector. Don't go to his house. Why, Why does he spend time with sinners? Because he's Jesus Christ. He's not the typical human Savior. He is the Savior. 
Something else we note about men, men who see themselves as Savior always demonstrate their weakness by their exorbitant display for survival. What do we mean by that? Isn't it interesting that the greatest leaders of the world always have to have the best security? They always have to have a barrage between them and the people. They always fear death. Isn't it interesting that those who claim to be the savers of the world cannot save themselves? They cannot go through this world and live by their own power and their own might. They find themselves completely inadequate to preserve their own lives. And that's why they always demand entire armies to fall on their knees before them. Because they cannot even save themselves. Yet Jesus Christ, He is completely different. Because He offered Himself as a sacrifice for the people. John 10.18 says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. You see, Jesus Christ had the power to preserve himself and to preserve his life, but he chose to lay it down. He is so different than men who see themselves as saviors. Lastly, men who see themselves as saviors are inevitably taken by the grave that takes all men in their death. Is all, they always find themselves to be like all others, and that is to be no saviors at all. Yet Jesus Christ tasted death for every man, and he also rose from the grave, and he is alive forevermore. Amen. In the Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says, We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death For every man. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 the Bible says. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. The Bible says he endured the cross. But now he is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus Christ is so much different than the saviors of the world. He is the Savior. If you think about that passage in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that Jesus Christ, that this mind be new which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 5. I want to consider what Jesus said as, he, as we consider the fact that He came, that God raised unto them a Savior. What is the tendency of men? Why did Peter say, God, 
the God of your father hath raised up Jesus. John 5.43, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. Here it is, verse 43. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Wow. Jesus Christ came. The Bible says God, the God of our fathers, hath raised up Jesus, Jehovah God, raised up unto the people a Savior. And Jesus Christ came in His name, the name of the Father. All that He did, He did by the will of the Father. And Jesus looks at the crowd. He says, if another come in His own name, He receive Him. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the only one ever Savior who offers forgiveness of sins. No other Savior has ever claimed to do that. You know what all the savers of the world have always claimed to do? I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you safety. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to be someone you can look up to. I'm going to be uh, someone that you can see, someone that as the children of Israel, when they wanted to have somebody visible that they could see, say, here is the God that brought us out of Egypt and they brought forth a golden calf. The tendency of man is to see someone who is visible, someone who they can see, someone who they can touch, someone they can believe in that will solve their trouble. But no one can forgive them from sin except Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is not just a Savior, he is the Savior, and there is nobody like Him. That's why Peter says, we ought to obey God rather than men. Yesterday I was talking to two men who said that they were from the nation of Islam. And I asked them out of curiosity what they believed in, and eventually, after all their talk, I asked them what they thought of Jesus Christ. And they said, well, he is a prophet. They acknowledged him as a prophet. And they went and said, well, throughout history, God has always had prophets. People who spoke through his name. And we, and we accept all those prophets. And we accept Jesus. And I said, well, Jesus not, was not just another prophet. Jesus was the prophet. Because he was God. And I went to explain to them... The Bible says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He is God in the flesh. He is the one that died for our sins. He's not just like all oh, another prophet. He's not just like another leader. He's not just some uh, so-called uh, self-proclaimed Savior of the world. He is the Savior. By the way, if you're a Christian today, He is the Savior that has changed your life. Is He not? Has anyone ever done for you what Jesus did for you? I'm glad to see those head shaking. So what do we concern ourselves about? I think about those words by Peter. God of our fathers hath raised up Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our leader. He is the one that we look to. 
in reference to the statue of Krumah, where he described himself as a redeemer, that monument has been smashed and reduced to powder. It's gone. It came, it went, a statue was erected, a statue was torn down. But the wonderful thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is you can't tear down his statue. He doesn't have a statue. He doesn't need one. Because he indwells the heart of the believer of those who believe in his name. And nobody can take that away. And so the truth is, no matter what happens in this world, we have an undying, unchanging, unequaled Savior. And so I say to us as the first century church, as a first century church, if we want to be that, we better make much of Jesus Christ. There is nobody like him. And we should not be ashamed of his name. Let us concern ourselves, no matter what the world may say, well, no matter what the world, how the world may portray Jesus Christ or ridicule the gospel message, in the words of Peter, God hath raised up Jesus. And he is the answer. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is the answer to the world? Then may that be our conversation. May that be our conversation. And not that we turn and say, oh, look, well, when's the next leader coming? When's the next election? And all those things. You know, it doesn't matter what happens in society. Our leader does not change. And what he's done for us cannot be taken away. And so may the Lord help us to rejoice in